What's a mercenary? Let me look this up. Okay, there are two main definitions. One is a soldier hired to do work for another army, and the second is a person who works purely because of monetary gains. I'm going to guess that they don't have allegiance other than whoever is paying them. They're hirelings. They get paid to do a job and to get it done, and they're not supposed to ask why. But mercenaries are people, and people are complex. They're filled with emotions, and they actually do have allegiance, even if they're paid to forget about that. And if you pay a mercenary to do something that goes over their moral line they've got internally, conflict happens, and everything falls apart. These are true stories from the dark side of the internet. I'm Jack Resider. This is Darknet Diaries. Support for this show comes from Veronis. Guess how many files the average employee can access on their first day of work? 17 million. And most of them, they never use. Those files are what these ransomware gangs steal and hold hostage. Because companies will pay to get that back. That's why ransomware is such a threat. The blast radius is huge. 17 million files? There's so much valuable data that's easy to get and they can make money from. Do you wonder what your company's ransomware blast radius is? Veronis does a free cyber resilience assessment and tells you how many important files a compromised user could steal and whether anything would beep if they did, and a whole lot more. They actually do all the work, show you where the data is open to, if anyone is using it, and what you can do to lock it down before attackers get inside. They also can detect behavior that looks like ransomware and stop it automatically. You can even get a break on your cyber insurance. If you want to learn more, visit varonis.com dark. That's spelled V-A-R. O-N-I-S, veronis.com slash dark. Let's get started. You ready? Yes, sir. Um, so let's start with uh, your name or what do you want to be called on this show and what do you do? Hi. Uh, yeah, my name's David and um, I am a type of offensive intelligence analyst. Um, I track foreign intelligence hacking in the United States. Um, that's what I do now. Oh my gosh, I have like 20 questions already just from saying that. Did you say offensive intelligence analyst? Uh, that's correct. <laughs> I've never heard of that. What does that mean? So um, if a foreign intelligence organization would gain access to any type of U.S.-based critical infrastructure, that would be something um, that I would uh, that would help investigate. This is going to be a great episode. It's very exciting to me because David is going to tell us a story that, well, was a secret up until this year, and still remains somewhat shrouded. So, let's get into it. Let's start when he was a teenager. In high school, David really wasn't into computers at all. Well, I was a long-distance runner. I was involved in um, all different types of extracurricular things, um, you know, student government and stuff like that. After high school, he went to college and got his degree. It was actually in religion and philosophy. Interesting. Take note here. Imagine all the morals and ethics one has to consider while majoring in religion and philosophy. My goals at that point were to um, pursue a career sort of alongside some of my, you know, ba basically other peers that I might be able to make a difference to. So I did, um, I did look into, you know, hey, how would I, could I potentially join as a chaplain? But, you know, talking to other people um, in that same world, they said, well, I've never even met my chaplain or I've never had a real conversation with them or I don't know who they are. Um, and I realized if I really wanted to make any type of um, difference in people's lives, it wasn't going to be as a chaplain. So after getting his degree, David decides to join the military. Off to the Navy, he goes. He does his initial boot camp, graduates from that fairly easy, and is a full-fledged Navy sailor. But David was hungry for more. My, my, my initial uh, school was in BUDS, so I joined um, to sort of become you know, go through that Navy SEAL track and kind of see how that went. Whoa. BUDS is basic underwater demolition training. It's what you need to go through to become a Navy SEAL. This is the most rigorous, demanding, and crazy training there is in the Navy. This is what they call Hell Week, and it's much longer than a week. 
Those who make it through this become practically drownproof. They become frogmen. And most of all, they become weapons experts. When I talked to a Navy SEAL and his mindset was, the last time I was deployed, um, I got every type of kill other than a knife kill. And he was like bragging about that and he just really wanted to get a knife kill. And that was like, okay, you know what? I don't want that to be me. Like, I'm not saying that like every Navy SEAL is like that, but the potential, if somebody be can become like that, then there's a potential that I can become like that. And so that was something that I wanted to avoid. That's an important job and I have a lot of respect for Navy SEALs, but I just sort of had this fear that, you know, I really don't want that to become me. That's some intense training, and you definitely need to do some soul-searching while there. You question yourself on whether you want this bad enough, or if you're fit enough to do it. You have to put mind over matter and push yourself beyond limits you think you can't ever get over. If you're going to push yourself beyond your own limits, you better really want what you're working for. And David wasn't sure if being a Navy SEAL was for him. He knew that Navy SEALs just weren't a bunch of killers, but he started to question if he really wanted it bad enough. So he rang the bell and quit Buds and looked for something else to do in the Navy. Still, he wasn't interested in computers, like, at all. The only thing he knew how to do was check Facebook and emails at that point. He's fit, buff even, and understands religion and philosophy. He looked at his options, and for some reason, computers and cyber warfare caught his attention. So he decided to sign up for that in the Navy. Immediately, he needed training, though. Um, well, I mean, the training is, is pretty basic. I mean, essentially, I mean, when I, well, actually, when I say basic, I don't mean basic. I mean, you know, it's the same type of training you would get everywhere else from a cybersecurity perspective, but it's the, the pace is significantly faster. So, um, so instead of going through, you know, a 12 week course to learn how to code, you do all of that in one week. Um, I mean, you literally learn all of it in a single week. And now you start to learn everything from, you know, from assembly language all the way up to um, to coding languages, and then how that's interacting with different types of assembly languages, and how coding, you know, you understand the process, how how it how it all sort of works. And so you go all the way up to that spot, and then you get back to the application layer, and then you move back down to sort of the exploitation layer, and and you know the exploitation layer in that environment is not taught. Um, you know, buffer overflows and um, exploitation analysis is not taught until you get into more OJT or following courses for uh, different shops. This amazes me. I mean, the Navy teaches people how to hack. I sort of know they do that, but it's just, it kind of boggles my mind every time I hear it. So he got training and then started doing security analyst work for the Navy. Yeah, it probably been a good maybe three or four months before I realized. I mean, in that time period when I was learning how to how to be a certain type of cybersecurity analyst or an exploitation analyst, or we're in training, you know, how to how to be a general IT person. I sort of enjoyed it, and I realized that I had, you know, I'm not, I'm in no ways an expert at um, at you know exploit development, but um, but I understand the concepts, and I don't give up. So it allows for me to sort of push through. And from that time period being at the shop, I, what, what I did next basically was, um, you know, and purchased a, a Mac Pro server, for instance, installed ESXi on that and, and started building stacks and learning, you know, hey, I'm learning this at work. You know, I'm not going to take the exact thing that I'm doing, you know, the exact concept because we're not really supposed to do that. But I can, you know, similar uh, layout, similar designs. And let me just replicate this at home so I can continue to learn how to do it. So it might be, let's, you know, let's learn how to pivot through a machine or let's how to um, exploit active directory trust relationships, so on and so forth. And being able to build those up and, and stuff like that allow, it just sort of grew my fascination with it. This is an important quality about David. He didn't just show up and do his work and go home. Instead, he built a lab and practiced on his off hours and got better and better. Anyone who really wants to excel in this kind of stuff has to have the mindset of always trying to learn and not just doing the minimum. And with the Navy teaching him formally and his home lab, he became pretty good at hacking. In fact, his specialty was not just getting in, but then pivoting around, moving laterally and finding what else is in that network. After about four months of doing that, he moved over to the NSA. Because David was an exploit analyst in the Navy, the NSA came and said, hey, 
don't you come work for us? And recruited him over. And so he started working for the NSA as an analyst there. And he worked at the NSA for a while. I'd say August of 2011 to August of 2014, so about three years. Then around that time, a new opportunity showed up. You know, at that point, I, I had gotten married. Um, probably while I was up there, it would have been maybe two years, almost two years I've been married. It was time for me to get out of the service, and um, I had gotten an offer to stay there on campus, which is at the NSA. Then uh, a different organization, or a, actually an individual recruiter, reached out to me and said, hey, 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 hey. There was this recruiter from a company called CyberPoint. This is a company that's contracted to do various types of hacking. Basically, if he were to work for this company, he would become a hacker for hire. The U.S. government actually grants certain companies extra permissions to conduct stuff like this. The details of this are foggy, but this company that was trying to recruit David was vetted by the U.S. government to do this. David listened to the recruiter tell him what the job entails. That I would be doing a lot of, um, you know, different types of offensive work. Offensive, you know, maybe security, maybe offensive intelligence. And, um, and that, would be, um, that would be sort of some of our, our goals. You know, whether or not it and be, give me a, give me an example of what some of the offensive work is that you expected to do. Um, I mean, just from previous conversations, I had understood. Well, you might be doing some tracking of terrorist organization to sort of help out and alleviate some of the workload in the United States, and you know, we're helping them out over there to sort of protect their country as well. And so, our main understanding was we're we're going over there to help them protect their country. This sounded good to David, to help protect the country, to help battle terrorists, and to reduce some of the workload for the U.S. forces. All right. The company was called CyberPoint, and it's based in Baltimore in the U.S. And it's typical that not all the details are given about your duties until after you sign an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement. But there was one more detail in this contract. If he was to accept it, he would have to move to Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates for two years which was the duration of this contract. Not really ever traveled, not really gone anywhere. I mean, I had before, but, you know, being married, my wife had not. Um, and so we, you know, made a decision together. They decided to take the job in Abu Dhabi. Off they go. They packed up everything they needed, said bye to the family, and moved to the UAE, which is right in the Middle East. And the name of the hacking unit Dave was assigned to was called Project Raven. Um, for their first... 30 days to 60 days, you're actually living in a hotel. Um, I mean, it's it, it was just, I mean, there, there are so many red flags when you first get over there. You should know to yourself, I shouldn't be doing this. What, what were but, some of them? Um, well, the fact that you have two different folders that explain different types of information, that should be one of them. Like, this is what we've told you you're going to be doing, and this is what you're actually going to be doing. When a new person would show up at Project Raven, they would get two back-to-back -back meetings. First was the purple meeting. In this purple meeting, you're given a folder with information, and it says you're here strictly to carry out defensive measures within the cybersecurity discipline, such as deploying firewalls, intrusion detection systems, and other defensive measures. But as soon as that purple meeting was over, new employees were told, that's just a front. It's a cover story that you can tell your family or anyone who pushes you to ask what you're doing. Then immediately you're given the black meeting with a new folder. In this black meeting, you're told a very different story. Here you're told you're going to be helping NISA conduct offensive cyber operations. This meeting further explained that NISA was the secret part of the UAE government, which is similar to the NSA, and that you're going to be helping them conduct electronic exploitation and collect information from specific targets. Yeah, for you and me, seeing these two back-to-back -back meetings like this would be a red flag, for sure. But for someone who's used to a lot of secrets coming out of the military and the NSA, this is actually a sort of common thing to experience covers and fronts for what your actual official duties are, yeah, that happens. So it wasn't an immediate flag for David. So the location we worked out of was actually um, a villa, a converted villa. So we could, you know, our, our spouses were not really even supposed to know where the villa was at, even though that's ridiculous because some people dropped their spouses off. Oh, so let's talk about this villa he worked out of. I saw a floor plan to this. L let me describe it. It was a big mansion. And it was just converted into like an office space that these contractors could work out of. 
I think that was there to sort of blend in and hide out. I mean, a mansion is typically private and secluded and quiet. It's a great place to set up a spy agency. And this villa is where Project Raven was to take place. The villa was two stories, and it consisted of a server room, a management office, a conference room, an operations center, a data processing room, a couple of kitchens, and some security guards hanging out. Dozens of people either worked there or had business there and would come and go. I'm guessing around 30 people worked in this villa. And the operation would go down like this. First, an order. A mission was relayed to the management office, and managers would then work with those in the targeting room to properly identify the targets. Then the team who worked in the infrastructure room would get busy. They would use fake identities and Bitcoin to anonymously rent server space around the world. And this is a precaution that in case the target figures out they're being spied on and they try to track it down, it doesn't come all the way back to this villa. There's this anonymous, untrackable gap. Then the targeting team would get to work, scouring the target's social media and trying to learn as much as they can about the target to strategize on a way to get into the victim's computers and phones. And once they knew a method of attacking, the target team would figure out what attacks to use or create an exploit from scratch. The target team was very good. They knew that the more you know about the target, the easier it will be to create exploits for them. The operations team would then step in. They'd be given all the tools to do the job and all the information on the target. Then they exploited the target's computer or cell phone to get data off of it and learn about that person or get the information that they're after. They vacuumed up photos, emails, call records, conversations, texts, locations, anything of value. And it was all done very secretly and covertly so the target wouldn't even know they're being spied on. Then this information was given to management, who then relayed it to whoever hired them. Pretty good little operation they had going on there. At this point, you might be wondering, who's hiring this group and conducting this spying and hacking? It was the UAE government who was hiring them to conduct these hacks. And it sounds like the UAE government was in the process of getting their own internal hacking group stood up, but they needed to hire this group of mostly Americans, many of whom were ex-NSA agents or ex-military intelligence trained. This way, the UAE government can see how they operate and sort of learn from them and build their own hacking team. Now, at this point, whenever I first started, everything was sort of on the level. Kind of what we were doing, what we were operating on, what our targets were. We all sort of agreed and we understood this is what we we're going to be working on. And the targets that David was given to extract data from seemed okay. He was given the same sort of mission each time. Was, um, was just on what could be perceived as terrorist activity and we were protecting the local infrastructure. Makes sense, right? Anyone can get behind this. Let's use hacking to get into terrorist cells and anyone planning to attack the UAE infrastructure and stop any terrorist attacks before they happen. And that's what happened. David and the team at Project Raven were learning what terrorists were planning and giving this information to the UAE government to stop them. Now, I should add an important note here. All of this hacking was done by citizens of the UAE, which are called Emiratis. I'm going to use that term a lot, so make sure you understand it. An Emirati is simply a citizen of the United Arab Emirates. Since the UAE was trying to train up their own team to do this, it made sense to teach them how. So David never really had hands on keyboard to conduct any of this. Instead, he was right next to an Emirati doing it, telling him exactly what keys to press and what exploits to use and giving advice on how to move around the network. And most Emiratis speak English, so the language barrier wasn't a problem. This sounds okay too, but it also might be a red flag. See, things get murky regarding how legal Project Raven was. It's clearly illegal to share classified information with other people. So David couldn't tell these Emiratis any secret information that he was privy to at the NSA. But in this case, David was sharing cyber spying techniques with the Emiratis. Provided it's not proprietary NSA-style tactics and exploits, there isn't any hard law prohibiting him from teaching others how to hack, such as how to set up a phishing email and use Metasploit to gain access to the victim's machine. I mean, anyone can learn this just on YouTube. So that part, okay, that's legal. But then we start trying to figure out whether an Emirati hacking into a terrorist phone who's also in the UAE is legal or not. In the US, it probably isn't legal, unless you're given express written consent from the US State Department. But what about over there? Now keep in mind, this company did have all the approvals they needed from the UAE government and the U.S. State Department to do this. So yeah, it might be a little easier to get approvals for things if Emiratis hack other Emiratis, but if an American were to do it, I don't know, would it be different? 
It's complicated, and it makes my head spin. But you see how murky this gets, right? But whatever, it's not something I'm going to be able to solve here. At this point, the UAE government was pleased with the work that Project Raven was doing. So the first four to six months, that's what we were doing. Anytime we had an alert or a red flag of a probable or um, anticipated event, uh, we would sort of start the process of doing research to see if we can identify whether or not it was a valid threat. Now, it's also important to say that all of this data exfiltration David was doing on the targets was only that, data exfiltration. He was never on a mission to drain a terrorist bank account or disable a car remotely or do any disrupting, degrading, or destroying things that other hackers might do. This was just collecting communications. This went on for a while, but then, at some point, the requests from the UAE government started to get a little weird. You know, the unfortunate thing is things didn't get weird for quite some time because the requests look very similar to what we are currently working on. Hey, this looks like that some of their funding might have come from over here. Can you guys, you know, what would be necessary for you guys to prove that a country, for instance, is funding terrorist activity? And then our response would be gain access to the country and gain access to this particular shop or this person and then read this stuff. Um, from the perspective of we're still sanctioned to perform these activities under the State Department. Um, and, you know, and, and again, this might have been, been just me being naive about the entire situation. You know, chances are other people on the shop knew the answers to the questions of this is not sanctioned. But, um, but me being so new to sort of this entire community and this whole world, I'm like, okay, well, this is this is approved. This is sort of one of those. They wouldn't be asking unless it was an approved um, request. Keep in mind, the government branch of the UAE communicating with Project Raven is called NISA, and this is UAE's version of NSA. So NISA told them to gain access to that foreign government's country's network to see if they're funding terrorists. So David's team got busy scanning the IP space of that target country's government network. And you'll never believe what they found. Stay with us. Support for this episode comes from Oracle for Startups. I think I have to buy a new phone this week. This one I have is running out of space, and it's just too slow for my modern usage. But I wonder if startup companies have this same problem, where they start out with some cool new technology to run their business, but over time it starts to slow down, and their underlying architecture just can't handle big customers, large spikes, or the growth that they hope to have. How does a startup find technology that can grow with them? Well, Oracle has this startup partnership. It's cleverly called Oracle for Startups. The idea is even though you're a startup, you can tap into the cloud computing power, expertise, and connections of a big dog like Oracle. You get free cloud credits and 70% off their cloud services. Plus, with multi-cloud support and no vendor lock-in, you build this any way you want. Now you aren't frustrated and you've got the power to scale and you're free to go after your dream customers. Don't stay stuck. Go check out oracle.com slash goto slash darknet. This episode is brought to you by the Jordan Harbinger podcast. Here's a clip from one of his episodes. You're about to hear a preview of The Jordan Harbinger Show, where I speak with the infamous Firefest's Billy McFarland from inside federal prison, where he's serving six years for fraud and on the hook for $26 million in restitution. This call is from William McFarland, an inmate at a federal prison. Is this the new Billy that we're hearing, or are you the same Billy that tried to pull off the Fire Festival? When I think about the mistakes that were made and what happened, there's no way I can just describe it other than what the f*** was I thinking. I was wrong, and I hope now that I can in some small way make a positive impact. Once you knew that the festival wasn't gonna go as planned, why didn't you call it off? So a lot of people don't know, but the decision to cancel the festival was made when I was told that three people had died at the event. Thankfully, no one was actually physically hurt in any way. But up until the last second, I believed incorrectly we could pull it off, and obviously I was wrong. We had something called the Urgent Daily Payments Document. Essentially, it was a list of payments that we had to make that day, or else the festival couldn't proceed. In the couple of months leading up to the event, it went from a couple thousand dollars a day to a few million dollars a day, where I had to wake up at 9 in the morning, find $3 million by noon, and then make the payments by 4. 
You had a big vision, I mean, it was huge. And you got so close to something great that everyone wanted to be a part of, and people still want to be a part of it. I have to wonder if there's going to be a Firefest version too. I assume you wouldn't call it that, but are you thinking of doing something similar? If there's anything that makes you want to create and build and do, it's being locked in a cage for months or years. Are you good to come? For more with Billy McFarland, including lessons learned on the inside and his plans once he's served the time he agrees he rightly deserves, check out episode 422 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. After the team at Project Raven scanned the .gov URLs for the target country, they found a VPN portal, a place you can log into, and from there you can get access to the internal systems in that network. And guess what? That VPN was using default credentials. It's not very hard find default credentials, a Google search. So, um, and I would say that 95% of, you know, initial accesses are gained based off of some type of EC guessable or default credentials. I mean, look at the, you know, IOT world right now. It's exactly what's happening. Take note, listeners, change your default passwords and don't use any of the top 100 most common passwords like QWERTYO or one two three four five. Make it hard for people like this to break into your stuff. Double check your routers, firewalls, computers, phones, emails, VPN servers, and make sure none of them are using easy to guess passwords. So when you when when somebody at your shop gets into this thing, now this is where you shine, right? Being able to move laterally in a network, pivot around, find the goods. Is that right? Um, it's sort of one of the things that I was trained in and, you know, and, and again, I'm really good at ideas. Uh, hey, let's do this. And then it's like a bunch of research if nobody's done that before. The idea they had here was let's start reading emails within this .gov organization. And so they found the organization was being managed by an MSP. An MSP is a managed service provider. Basically, this .gov organization didn't have the expertise or headcount to handle all the routers, firewalls, servers, phones, or whatever. And so they contracted all this out to someone else to take care of it. And that's what an MSP does. It manages, patches, oversees, and troubleshoots the network devices. I think in this case, they did a bad job at managing the network since they left default passwords on the VPN. But who am I to judge? David's team found a device on the network managed by this MSP. It was a server running an app called Managed Engine, which is basically a tool to help you monitor your network better. The default credentials on this platform, again, default creds, are administrator, administrator. You log in, and there's a known vulnerability for this where you um, you actually have to, uh, um, you're creating a ticket, but in that process of creating a ticket, you can upload a document. In that process of uploading a document, since you're administrator, you go back to the administrator console where it tells you where do you want the documents to go that you upload, and then you can change that to a new location. Say, for instance, if you know it has a var dub 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 HTML space, and you know, hey, I can actually just drop these right in there, you know the subfolder creation naming convention for each ticket number, then you go and create a ticket, you put an ASPX web shell on there, you know, upload it as part of that ticket, and now you browse to your ASPX web shell and you have um, either a, a web shell, or if your ASPX is a reverse, let's just say, interpreter session, um, now you have access to that server. Um, realizing that they had credentials stored in the machine that we just used their encryption process to just took that down, reverse their encryption process. Again, somebody else significantly smarter than me did this. Reversed this encryption process to actually decrypt the, pa the, the, uh, the passwords for administrators for peered networks in this platform. Okay, so now they have a whole bunch of usernames and passwords of people who log into this managed engine server. And from here, they figured out that some of the users also worked for this MSP. And they also found a tunnel back to the MSP. So now they decide to try to get into that MSP's network. You have two different ways. If you have a credential, you just use your you're, again, um, living off the land, your NetBIOS or your SMB um, passing the hash or even the plain text password. Log in remotely until you get where you want to go to the domain controller, dump all the, the credentials, and then install persistence throughout the environment. Whoa. Oh, man. Like, this is 
Do you realize what's happening here? David's team has access into the managed service provider, this MSP. This is a company that has a map to all the critical infrastructure for this .gov organization. And it also has all the passwords and IP addresses and access to all these systems. But not only that, this MSP had many more clients, like other .gov networks in this target country. Do you see now? David's team just got tons and tons of access into that target government's network by gaining access to this single MSP. I mean, where do you even begin looking for emails or communications saying that they're paying the terrorists? The UAE government asked Project Raven for an update. Did you find anything yet? And the team responded by saying, We gain access to Ministry of Foreign Affairs, you, you know, their, uh, their royal family airline, some of their military infrastructure. This was very interesting to the UAE government. They then asked the team to track the royal family airlines of this target nation. Yeah, where they're flying at least. And then, um, then we started getting requests for daily pools. We want this particular flight tracker on a daily basis. Um, again, that was sort of another red flag of like, why are you? What? Why is this important? Like, if you guys are just looking for um, looking for uh, uh, proof that they're funding Muslim Brotherhood, why, why do you guys need this information? And so, um, more internal conversations that leading to actually we're becoming the um, intelligence shop intelligence gathering shop for essentially the local country's um, intelligence agency. So we're no longer really focused on getting this particular type of information. And that's when questions started to come up. Why are we doing this? What, what is, I mean, what is the point of this? Um, and in reality, from a political perspective, I could see that there's a lot of points. Like they want to know who else this country's talking to, if they're lying behind their back or so on and so forth. But I mean, those are just speculation. You know, I, I would assume that they're doing this, but I don't really have any idea. Let's put our ethics cap on here. If you were hired to work in another country as a cyber mercenary, if you will, and you come for the money and to help the government fight terrorism, but now you're just helping the UAE collect intelligence off a foreign government's royal family, do you question it? Or do you do it diligently with no questions asked? This scratched something in the back of David's head. Something wasn't exactly right with this. But he kept on doing his work anyway. He went back into that foreign government network and started looking around for anything about terrorist funding. And sometimes when David was in that network, he would see someone else was also in there at the same time. Another hacker. Maybe another government agency has hacked into the same system that he was sitting on. And seeing something like this always makes you slow down and take a breath. We're not going to like go in and um, help clean up an entire environment because we're in there. So, um, but you can see that there's stuff there. You kind of can do some research, in fact, figure out what it is. But um, lots of times in those environments, you, uh, you either don't use those particular machines that might have other infrastructure on there or you just uh, do your best to sort of blend in and also if you have proprietary tools you don't use those tools on that that piece of infrastructure this makes sense right exploits are weapons and if you load up your best weapon so that you can hop into another computer anyone else who's on that system can also see your exploit or weapon and grab it for themselves and so it's best to use off-the-shelf stuff because you really have no idea who else is hacking their way around this network, too. The UAE called up Project Raven and gave him a new request. Hey, is there any indication that bribing happened for a particular sport? We want to know if a sport happened, like if it was bribing, because we both bid on this to take place in our country, and, um, and then they won it. And we think that we probably bid higher and we had a much better chance, but they won. And then we realized that the requests were all political. I mean, there's no, there's no real request about funding the Muslim Brotherhood. I mean, it was just sort of the shady request designed to push us forward to gain access to this. 
Hmm. Again, this was odd for David, because he came here to do something else. He quit the NSA and moved with his wife all the way across the world to here, the UAE, to battle terrorists. Now he's learning that's not what this role is actually for. It's kind of changed. And this is kind of hard to handle. I mean, if he knew this was what the job was from the beginning, he might not have moved all the way over here to do it. I think this is when David starts to really question his work here. There were other teams in the villa, like I was saying earlier. David was there to extract information from the target, but his team would give that information to another team for analysis, which is just in another room in this villa. One of the people in that analysis team was named Lori Stroud. Lori would take the information collected and try to make sense of what it was, and then give it to management and then the UAE officials. Before coming to Project Raven, Lori was a technology consultant for a company called Booz Allen Hamilton. And after that, she went on to work for the NSA. But now she's here in this villa with David. Lori, too, was getting suspicious of the motives that the UAE was giving her. We start getting requests for targeting of, let's just be honest, journalists and human rights activists. And our... You know, it, it, again, they started to sort of raise some pretty significant flags. There were journalists and activists that were being critical of the UAE government and their leaders. Basically, the UAE saw these people as threats to the nation and wanted this team to get anything they could off them. What stories were they working on? Where were they rallying? Where were they located? What were their phone calls about? Now, back in the U.S., where David and Lori are from, this is wrong. The First Amendment of the Constitution protects against this. In short, it says, Congress shall make no law prohibiting the freedom of press or the right of people to peaceably assemble. So this was not okay for them to morally or ethically do. As David said, this was starting to go too far. This was becoming a bigger red flag now. No, there's no potential threat. The only potential threat is going to be political. It just sort of turned into something that we didn't really quite, um, none of us really agreed with. None of us thought it was the right um, direction for us to be going. And um, so we started to raise questions. We started to say, hey, I don't think this is the right way. The UAE was requesting more and more from Project Raven, which clearly looked like it was for political reasons and not for threats against the nation. At one point, they asked the team at Project Raven if they would consider targeting U.S. computers. Like if a known terrorist was using a computer in the U.S., then they wanted the data off that computer. But David is from the NSA and military, and he remembers clearly reading through FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Service Act, and in section OVSC 1203, it clearly says if you find yourself targeting a U.S. person, you should detarget them at an emergency priority. This was clearly going over the line for David, so he advised management to push back on this objective. We told them that, you know, we're, we're encouraging you not to do this, yep. With that, a lot of conversations went back and forth between this company that David and Lori worked for and the UAE government. At one point during her analysis, Lori found that data was collected on U.S. citizens, and she decided this was wrong. And she said, quote, I don't think Americans should be doing this to other Americans. I'm a spy, I get that, and I'm an intelligence officer, but I'm not a bad one, end quote. Lori was not happy with this and started to raise even more questions. By now, over at the villa where Project Raven was, the seams were starting to show. Employees were asking questions, and they were feeling hesitant about the work they were doing. Probably at this point, around October, November, there's sort of a lot of red flags going up for people. And then, um, and then my wife and I, we left for Christmas break, uh, go, back to the, go back to the States around Christmas time. And um, I think it was uh, December 17th or 16th or 17th, when I got an email saying um, from our U.S. contracting agency that um, that they're essentially giving everyone a, um, a reprieve on their contract. And if you want to go back to the United States, they'll pack you up and ship you home at no cost. And uh, we decided to do that. And a lot of, a lot of, I mean, a lot of people, I mean, there's also a lot of people who decided to stay. But um, a lot of the people that I operated with on a daily basis decided, this is, I'm not staying here. And, and so we took off. After David left, Project Raven continued. They carried out new operations and tasks that were given to them. And 
I'm going to switch gears here for a minute and bring on someone new to talk about what happens next at Project Raven. My name is Rory Donahay, and uh, in 2012, I uh, set up a human rights group that was effectively just a WordPress website and a blog where I set out press releases from that was called the Emirates Center for Human Rights. And I wrote about human rights abuses in the United Arab Emirates because I felt that they weren't getting enough coverage and I had built up some good contacts that helped me with information that happened there. Rory was living in London in the UK and he started this little WordPress blog simply to call attention to some of the bad things that the UAE government was doing. But this blog started to pick up and it was getting noticed by some bigger journalists. I was getting good coverage and and getting access to big platforms. So I was um, being interviewed semi-regularly by the BBC across its English and, crucially, its Arabic platforms. And also, when uh, you know, the, the work was being covered a little bit more in, in places like the Financial Times and the Guardian, so places where you never would see discussion about Dubai other than in a positive tourist and, and business sense, all of a sudden there were these stories about torture and uh, how they were treating people in prison and political activists and shutting down a free speech. So it was changing, I think, slightly the the international image of the UAE at the time. Here's a clip from Rory on the BBC. I'm joined by uh, Rory Donaghy, who is campaign manager for the Emirates Centre for Human Rights based here in the UK. Why is this important? This is important because they've been tortured and some have been held as enforced disappearances over the last seven months. We've seen the European Parliament condemn the human rights abuses in the UAE over the past two weeks. Well, let me quote to you uh, what uh, the Attorney General, uh, Mr. Kubaish, has said. that He says that they were arrested uh, for managing an organisation with the aim of committing crimes against state security. Mm. Well, there has been no evidence uh, pro- uh, brought forward for that. Neither they have haven't they... gone to court yet, either. They haven't gone to court. The UAE government did not like Rory talking about them. They told Project Raven to get in his computer and phone and spy on him. One day at work in the Middle East, I I got an email asking if uh, I could take part in a human rights panel. And uh, if I wanted to take part in it, could I click on the following link? and uh, comment on a, a piece. And the link looked like it would go to an Al, Al Jazeera English's website. Um, but the email address was very odd. It was random and the English was poor, misspelt. But nonetheless, I was foolish enough to click on the link. And uh, when I did, it didn't go anywhere. And so I thought it was very strange. So I just forwarded it on to Citizen Lab <coughs> and uh, Bill Marzak there, who I knew through through work. and. Um, he got to work on it because even at that point when I sent the email to him, I, I couldn't have thought that I was being surveilled. I just thought it was a bit strange. So I had no, I really had no idea what was going on. So Roy gave this email to Citizen Lab. They basically do research on espionage going around against civil society. So if a journalist or an activist thinks they're being targeted by malware or espionage from some government, they can go to Citizen Lab to get help. So Rory sent this suspicious email to them to check into it. After some time, Bill came back to me and and told me that um, I had been the target of um, the spyware. Besides the URLs riddled with spyware, there were a lot of people tweeting at Rory too. Citizen Lab found 31 public tweets sent to Rory that were suspicious. These were all tweets about human rights activities in the UAE with certain URLs that contained spyware. These tweets were publicly sent to Rory. But what was really interesting about these tweets is that about six of the accounts that sent these tweets were actually UAE citizens, except they had been arrested. And these tweets were sent after their arrest. Oh, uh, yeah. So uh, this is a common tactic in the UAE, which would be to, once they'd had arrested a political activist or dissident, that they would then take control of their social media accounts and then use them to try and uh, sort of lure other people they would want to pull into their web of surveillance um, because obviously they couldn't arrest me because I was living in London. Um, so the, yeah, that's that's quite a common tactic. Uh, it's, a, it's a really frightening tactic. A very freaky tactic, but an effective one because the team at Project Raven did completely infiltrate Rory's computer and phone. Bill at Citizen Lab told Rory the bad news. He said he believed, like, that ultimately was the UAE government to spy on me and probably uh, listen and and read all my uh, communications. And 
you know, they, they weren't just surveilling me from what I understand. It was also my, my, my parents, my, I have a younger brother who's got special needs, who poses no threat to anyone. Uh, the school he went to, my partner. Um, so I did feel I did feel really violated. I, I guess the thing that I would say most about it is is that when people ask about the story, is that it all happens silently. So I was just carrying on with my life. When I think about the experience of it, there wasn't really an experience of it. It was this all happened so silently. There's it's such an effective way of surveilling someone that you have no idea about um, just how pervasive it is or, or or what they have access to. Um, and so it's not really it's not an experience as such it's just something that happens and then someone tells you about later and it's quite hard to retroactively uh feel something because uh it's already happened at that point so it's it's just it's a very bizarre experience i don't know if i learned that a foreign government has infiltrated my computer and was looking at my emails private messages texts and knowing what stories i was working on i'd be extremely freaked out so I think it's a little weird that Rory didn't panic more. Actually, when you talk about my response to it being weird, I think it's because the I felt safe in London. And if I'd lived in the UAE with, under the fear of this authoritarian government that's capable of torture and imprisonment for a long period of time, I'd have felt very differently about it. Hmm, that does make sense. If you compare torture and arrests versus being spied on, I guess he got the lesser of two consequences for speaking up against the UAE on that one. He was able to clean up his computer, wipe the spyware off, and was careful not to be infected again. But he looks back on this experience, and it's still a bit shocking to him. Yeah, I, I, do you know, the, the fact that there was like a whole team of people, and they must have spent a, quite a significant sum of money on this, um, I, 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 do fi I find that um, frightening, because it's, that's still going on now, but just to someone else, I imagine. While Rory was writing about human rights in the UAE from London, there was another activist also writing about this same stuff. But he was an Emirati. His name was Ahmed Mansour, and Rory talked with him a lot back then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Ahmed was a, a close contact, and I'd say, you know, a friend uh, throughout the time that I, I covered human rights abuses in the UAE. And uh, Ahmed was the number one political and human rights activist in the UAE. Here's a clip from YouTube that's uh, Ahmed talking about human rights. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Ahmed Mansour from United Arab Emirates. Uh, uh, I will focus uh, in this presentation on the latest development related to human rights situation in UAE. The first point that I would like to talk about is the arbitrary uh, detention. And the Once again, this is another person that the UAE government was not happy about and assigned Project Raven to spy on Ahmed as well. And the same tactics were used. Phishing emails from so-called activists, tweets from people who were arrested. And Project Raven also got into Ahmed's phone and computer and could see pretty much everything he was doing. But Ahmed had a much worse fate than Rory. So uh, Ahmed was arrested by the Emirati authorities um, and accused of some crime that wouldn't exist in any democratic state. I think it was communicating with foreign enemies or something along those lines. He was actually charged with damaging the country's unity, which kind of sounds like a made-up crime to me. And sentenced to, I think, 10 years in prison. And uh, there's been credible reports of his torture and kept in, in really terrible conditions in the UAE. Jeez, can you imagine? If you speak out against your government, and then the government hires a bunch of ex-NSA people to spy on you, and this leads them to find where you live and what you're doing, which then gets you arrested, and then you get put in prison for 10 years and placed into solitary confinement with terrible living conditions. And let's not ignore that all of Ahmed's family is also spied on. His wife's phone was also hacked by this group, and she now lives in fear and social isolation as a result of all this. And, and, the, and the reason that this has happened to Ahmed is because he has been the lone light in covering human rights abuses in his country for, for many years and led to him winning prestigious human rights awards, including the Martin Ennals Award for Human Rights Defender of the Year. And his growing um, stature as an international human rights defender is really what I think led to his arrest because he was known as being... a. He wasn't affiliated to any religious or political group that 
could be used to undermine his credibility by the UAE. And so Ahmed stood alone as this as this really respected human rights activist. And I can't stress enough how brave and courageous he was to do that work in a country where he knew that if when he was going to get arrested, which was inevitable, that he would be tortured and treated in such a terrible way. And prior to his arrest, Ahmed was being surveilled in the most pernicious and obtrusive way, um, which, as I'm sure you know, led to uh, Apple having to issue an update to their software because of the way he was surveilled, which was through when it was sent to his iPhone. Oh, right. Apple and iPhone. Let's talk about that. Project Raven had access to this crazy hacking tool called Karma. When I read about Karma, it kind of reads like how Hollywood hacking is portrayed. It's crazy simple, and it blows my mind. In 2016, the UAE purchased this hacking tool, Karma, from some outside vendor. We don't know who made it or where it was purchased from. The UAE told Project Raven, look, we have this great new tool, and you can target iPhones with it. But this was its limitation too, just iPhones. And here's how it works. If someone in Project Raven knew their target had an iPhone and wanted data off it, they might decide to use Karma. And all you have to do is give Karma the phone number or email address of your target. A text was then sent to that target's phone. And here's the craziest part. The user doesn't even have to click on a link or do anything in order for this exploit to work. The text just has to get to the phone. And once it got to the phone, the exploit could then steal photos, emails, text messages, and location data all without user interaction. It really was an amazing tool for getting the data off these targets. It was too easy even. We aren't sure exactly how, but it looks like it was exploiting a flaw in Apple's iMessage. By sending this crafted text through iMessage, it enables the exploit. In 2017, Apple pushed an update which made this tool much less effective. There isn't a lot known about this tool, but even just this gives us a sense of what its capabilities were and what Project Raven had at its disposal. David told me he never used Karma himself, but I wonder if that just means he just told other people to use it. The UAE government terminated the contract with Project Raven and brought in a new contractor named Dark Matter. Dark Matter is a UAE company owned and operated by UAE citizens. The people who were at Project Raven had the option, either join Dark Matter or quit. And about a quarter of them quit, but the rest moved on to Dark Matter. Lori was one of the ones that moved on to Dark Matter. You have to understand, Lori was working for government contractors for a while and the NSA. She's used to doing this kind of clandestine work. In fact, she loves doing cyber espionage. It's what she's good at. And this was a good paying gig. So Lori kept at it. And the UAE was now working with Dark Matter to carry out these objectives and offensive intelligence operations. Lori continued to work for Dark Matter for a while, and at one point she got a list of targets. When she looked at the list, she saw that some of them were Americans. And she looked up their occupation and saw these were American journalists. Oh, this made her sick to her stomach. She raised even more questions about this and started to say this isn't right. So Dark Matter put her on leave. They escorted her out of the building and had her passport revoked. That had to be extremely scary for her, to be in the UAE, upset with the UAE government, and to have your passport taken? She felt like she was probably now a target and being surveilled. She was stuck in this country with no way out. This had to be a very dark time for her. After two months, she was allowed to go back to America. And upon arriving in the States at the airport, the FBI agents questioned her and asked, what US citizens were you spying on? But she refused to tell them anything. I think she thought she was under UAE surveillance still at that point. And it was all probably just so stressful. The FBI still, to this day, has an ongoing investigation about all this. They want to know whether or not classified information was given to the Emiratis and if targeting U.S. citizens actually happened. Because these are both clearly illegal and the FBI wants to know if these laws were broken. And still now, Dark Matter is operating and working with the UAE government and NISA. And they're probably continuing to do all the espionage on behalf of the UAE government. 
Now, you might be wondering, how do I know all this? Well, David just told us, right? But he only told us some of the story. Back in January of this year, Lori came forward and told her whole story to Reuters. Journalists Christopher Bing and Joel Schechtman took her story and fact-checked it against a lot of people, including eight ex-Project Raven employees. Chris and Joel did an amazing job reporting the story and published it earlier this year. And of course, I fact-checked their story too. I made a lot of phone calls and wrote a lot of emails and had some very interesting conversations about this whole story. I even called up an ex-NSA person that I know who has contacts in dark matter to learn a little more. And yeah, Reuters did a great job on the story. And when the story came out, it made really big news. But the only one who allowed her name to be in the story was Lori. Now, for the first time, you heard a second person come forward. David. He has never spoken publicly about this until now. Which is pretty exciting to hear someone else tell us this inside story. It's kind of a big deal. I asked Rory what he thought of this story when he read it. I remember telling my uh, partner about the story before it was going to come out. She obviously doesn't think I'm a liar, but I mean, she she, uh, she thought it sounded a bit crazy and that, that maybe I'd been duped into thinking that this had happened because of just how crazy it sounded. Um, so, and I had that response myself a little bit when, when the Reuters guys phoned me initially. Um, I felt that it, it, even at that point, even with all my knowledge and experience of the UAE and the Gulf, I still felt that this sounded like it had gone a bit like far. Like, really? Would they really have gone through this much effort to surveil me? Um, so I, I, was, I was still a bit surprised by it all. I was glad that it came out because I think that people should know the, know the truth about a country that invests huge sums of money to portray itself as a friendly, open, global country that is tolerant and happy, but in reality is nothing more than a tin pot dictatorship with billions and billions of dollars to uh, keep hold of power and lock up anyone who challenges them. And that that's a really important thing to know when they're a close ally of not only my country and the UK, but also of America and, and other European allies. Do you think you'll ever go to the UAE again? I, I wouldn't feel comfortable going to the UAE even if the, the president of the country gave me a personal assurance that nothing would happen to me if I went there. And again, it's not because I feel important or, or whatever, it's just that I wouldn't trust authorities who not harm me because they've so consistently done that to a whole range of people from petty criminals who've been there on, on drugs charges or, or written a, bad, a check in bad faith to political activists. So. I would never feel comfortable going to the UAE. Project Raven was a hacking unit working for a company called CyberPoint, which is based in Baltimore. The CEO of CyberPoint was questioned about all this and flat out said the mission of Project Raven was to help the Emiratis defend their network, very similar to what that purple meeting said they were doing. But perhaps the CEO didn't actually know. Perhaps that unit was initially set up to do that, but somehow transformed to become offensive all on its own, without proper oversight from CyberPoint. And David even said, over time, the missions changed. And so this was a secret operation in the UAE. How much of a secret operation is really going to be reported back to Baltimore? Dark Matter has publicly said that this entire story written up in Reuters is false, made up, it's defamatory, and it's unsubstantial. And they deny any wrongdoing. Oh, and check this out. You might have a Dark Matter root certificate in your browser. In 2017, Dark Matter applied to be a sort of certificate authority. They wanted to issue SSL certificates to websites so those websites are secure. And all major browsers granted Dark Matter the ability to become a certificate authority with provisional status. Ah! <laughs> so yes, their root certificates were trusted in all our browsers. And after that happened, Dark Matter approved 275 websites to be trusted. But this year, that changed. When Reuters published that report, Firefox and Google read it, and they saw what Dark Matter was doing, and they decided to revoke that root certificate from being trusted. So now certificates from them will show up as untrusted sources. I hope the other browsers follow suit too. While I was putting this episode together, I went to Black Hat, the security conference in Vegas. And there, Natalie Silvanovich gave a presentation on exploiting iMessage. Let me tell you about Natalie, because in my book, she's amazing. Natalie works for Project Zero. Project Zero is amazing, too. It's a project that Google started. 
basically the Project Zero team at Google has the job of finding vulnerabilities in software of any kind. It doesn't have to be just Google vulnerabilities. It could be software with Microsoft or Apple or anything. Natalie works on this team and simply obsesses over finding vulnerabilities in software. After hearing about Karma and what this Project Raven was doing, she decided to take a deep dive and try to figure out how Karma could have worked. Because it's really remarkable to just send a message to an iPhone and to get back pictures, text, location, and more. So Natalie began trying to exploit iMessage on the iPhone. And I won't go into how she found the bugs, but she found three vulnerabilities on the iPhone. Now, when someone at Project Zero finds a vulnerability, they tell the vendor and they give them 90 days to fix it. If it's not fixed in 90 days, they're going to publicly disclose this vulnerability. So software companies better move quick once Project Zero tells them about the bugs. Natalie told Apple about these three bugs, I think back in May of this year. Then she waited. Apple acknowledged the bugs and patched their phones. And once that happened, Natalie published her report about the vulnerabilities found and gave a presentation on it at Black Hat. And what she found was really interesting. It's not the smoking gun, and there's no evidence that this is what Karma was or used. But it might be. Basically, Natalie found that if you send a zip file to an iPhone, the iPhone then tries to peek inside it to look at the object file within it and then display on the iPhone what kind of files are in there. And it does this automatically without the user even trying to open the file or click anything. And here's the crazy part. When your iPhone gets this file and looks inside it, it looks at this object file inside it, which can instruct your phone to go to a URL without the user clicking anything. Now, this alone is useful information. Just by visiting a URL, you get that phone's IP address and other metadata about the browser type. And this could give you a rough idea of where that person is. But on top of that, it's requesting a certain thing from that URL. And if you send it back a malicious payload to execute, you could do extra stuff to the phone that you shouldn't be able to do. And this is a fascinating exploit, but it doesn't quite capture all the text and pictures. But remember that Apple did a patch to iMessage back in 2017, which Project Raven operatives said made Karma less effective. So, hmm, hopefully now, now that Natalie has found three vulnerabilities in the iPhone, hopefully this makes Karma completely useless. But we don't know for sure. Now, I wanted to give the last word to David because one of the main reasons why he wanted to come on and share this story is because he wants to give a warning to anyone accepting foreign contract work. If a recruiter comes to you with a high-paying job in another country, you might want to think twice about it. Now, I guess my encouragement from that perspective is if you are transitioning out of a space like, you know, uh, from, from a technical or offensive space, and you, you sort of hear of jobs, hey, let me go ahead and take this job over there and do this because it's going to be this low-level networking position. Just kind of understand and know that um, that may, what you're signing up for may not be actually what you're doing. Um, what, what, what you're going to go, um, what you're being promised or what the, what the job description is, is, is more than, if you're going overseas, is more than likely not what you're going to do. Creating a safety net for yourself is, uh, is really the right, the right way forward. So say for instance, if you're married and you're going to go take a foreign job and you don't actually know what you're going to be doing, then go without your spouse for the first couple weeks, you know, kind of see, let me go over there and fill it out. That way, if you do have to leave and you have to leave in a hurry, you're not buying two plane tickets out of a country. You're only buying one. Um, or if you're deciding this is sort of not right, this not the right space for you, then you can leave um, significantly faster. You know, if you're uh, if you are going over a certain spot and um, and you have experience doing things and um, people contact you and reach out to you um, that you don't know, you never heard of before. From you know, even in, especially if it's a foreign contracting vehicle, if it's not an American contracting company. Um, that should, of course, be a significant red flag. If you're being recruited for dark matter and you have any type of cyber or offensive space or uh, offensive background in the uh, cybersecurity world, um, chances are you're not going to be doing what you think you're doing. A big thank you to David for being brave enough to come forward with this story. Amazing, amazing. Thanks so much to Rory Donahay for sharing his story. 
Also, thanks to Christopher Bing and Joel Schachtman from Reuters. Their article is titled Inside the UAE's Secret Hacking Team of American Mercenaries. And that article is amazing and you should all check it out. It's got the floor plan of the villa and it goes into so much more detail. And of course, thank you to Lori Stroud. None of this would even be known if it wasn't for your bravery bringing all this to light. For show notes and links, check out darknetdiaries.com. And while you're there, you might as well check out the shop where you can buy stickers and shirts. And trust me, it'll make your friends jealous if you have one of these. And you'll also look really good in one of the shirts from there. The show is created by me, the Pulit Hackard, Jack Recider. Editing help this episode was by the Dot Matrix, Damien. And the theme music is by the helmet wearer, Breakmaster Cylinder. And even though my name is probably put on a list somewhere within Dark Matter, whenever I say it, this is Darknet Diaries. <laughs>